And once again, we caution you. These stories are definitely not for the timid soul. So we tell you calmly and very sincerely, if you frighten easily, turn off your radio now. Senors, please to let me pass. Let's get into the bedroom. No, no, please. Just let me pass. I go up the seventh floor to find my sister. Just let me pass. The people of 107 will do what you wish now. <coughs> Annie have died last week on these trees. In the basement of this building, we find them. I have given them the last rites. Now, you do what you will. You are stronger than us. Well, soon, I think. They be stronger than you. We must stop the killing or lose the war. Most Material Podcast. I'm Tom Carnell. And I'm Langley West. Episode 198. We're so close. Oh, we're so close. So close. Um, we had a guy coming on here now. Um, known this guy a long time. Has one of the best collections ever. Ever. That you'll ever see. Um, <laughs> well, we're going to talk about that. We are going to yeah, talk about yeah. it. This guy's a writer. He's a publisher. He works for his company now is Dream Dreams and Visions Press. He's an old friend. Um, please welcome John Scleri. Yay! Thanks, guys. Good to be here. Dude, I, you're, you're another one of those names that is always that was on that list of people, and we're like, ah, we'll slug through these, make it all happen, and look, you know, and here I am. Yeah, <laughs> here you are. You know, every week, you know, we have somebody on, and uh, it, it occurs to me that you know the posters on my wall have come to life. <laughs> now, now, granted, I did not have a poster of John on my wall, but theoretically in my head the posters well, I, I, I find it most fascinating yeah. that we meet every week we meet people that live in disparate parts of the country yep. and have all these different jobs and we're all kind of the same tribe we are family and John, John definitely yeah. fits in with that <laughs> um, so standard question opening up is uh, uh, did you, I know you, we, we met in San Jose California is that where you hail from is that where you grew up yeah, born and raised in Santa Clara, have been here all my life, went to school here, um, found, you know, the friends that have gotten me involved in crazy projects through the years have all been here, and they have never left. I uh, I love it too much out here. Yeah, yeah. It's great for to be a movie fan and be, live in the Bay Area. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Were you always a kid that were, was, were you a collector from early on? Yeah, and I, I I tell people one of the reasons why my collection is what it is today is because I still basically live blocks from the house that I grew up in. Wow. I never had one of those big moves where you really had to purge everything. Uh-huh. So I've got things in my display cases that I had when I was, you know, four, five, six years old still. Wow. Dude, um, I am so jealous of you because 
we had so many of those moves where you had to purge everything yeah. throughout my yeah. life. And it's I Moving was, is what cured me of the collector bug. <laughs> <laughs> I did it a couple of times, like California to Washington and right. Idaho and what have you, and it was mm. just like, no, I'm not yeah. going to pack when, this when, up again. When you have to make those decisions about, do I really want this bad enough to carry these heavy boxes a long distance? <laughs> sometimes it makes it easier to say goodbye to things. Right, right, yeah. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, where, where'd you go to school? Uh, I went to Santa Clara University. Mm-hmm. What about um, high school? At Santa Clara High School. Wow. You know, I, <laughs> you know like I said, I, <clears throat> the funny thing is that was never my plan. I had always kind of grown up with this notion I'd go to UCLA Film School. And when it came time to apply for colleges, that's where I applied. And my parents were a little concerned, thinking, well, you have to apply somewhere else. And so I applied to Santa Clara. My brother had gone there for his undergraduate degree, thinking, well, it's local. I could keep my you know, job if I got in. Uh, I was working in a bookstore at the time. And I got into UCLA, and I thought, well, that's it. I'm going to L.A. And then I got into Santa Clara. And you know, between the scholarship opportunities, the fact that I could keep my job, and I realized, you know, it's undergraduate. I could always go to film school after. Mm-hmm. Um, I just stayed, but staying, you know, I I met my wife in the bookstore and, you know, made all my friends, got my roots real deep and and never left. So, and and it all ties to, you know, my love of genre is what kind of uh, got me here because it was, you know, falling in love with movies and books that got me in the bookstore. So, I blame Night of the Living Dead for everything in everything. my life. Everything. Yeah, I do too. Everything. <laughs> so... Uh, wanting to go to film school you wanted to be a filmmaker right yeah and uh and when i went to santa clara they had a you know they it was more of a tv program than a film program but i thought well you know i could i could find my way to make that work to do the things i wanted to do so i was a communication major with a television emphasis and you know did little short films and things and you know like everybody i i was out of the Super 8 um, realm growing up, I actually did shoot some stuff on Super 8 uh, before the technology was completely removed from, you know, local processing. Right. But most of the things I did were, you know, in the, the era of when you had, you know, VHS camcorders that all you needed was a friend with one of those, and you too could make your, you know... Knock off zombie movies circa 1982. <laughs> Isn't that what Rodriguez talks about doing in uh, Rebel Without a Crew about using VCRs to edit back and yeah, forth? He would, and yeah, yep. he would. Very cool. Literally edit from like very tape cool. to tape. Oh, we we edited in camcorder. It's like okay, oh, yeah. we have to, yeah, basically we're shooting this. You know, it's like it's gonna go start to finish in the recorder in the camera. <laughs> We do this show. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was the very first, um, uh, uh, very first editing class I had. Was like, okay, you're going to shoot this and you're going to edit it, but you have no access to editing tools. Oh, that's cool. So you have to you have to plan your shots, right? Yeah. And of course, it was all it was all wonky because there were yeah. like, gaps and things and. and but uh, but it made you really think about you know like I'm not going to shoot any extra bullshit I'm just going to shoot what I need you know <laughs> yep no when I when I was in school we were shooting on three quarter inch and uh, 
oh, it was painful. Every time you thought, oh, we want to do a, an effect, we want to do a dissolve here, some sort of transition, you realize it's a loss of a generation on each end of that transfer. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, you, then you watch, you know, just a few years later, it's like, boy, I went back to the university, looked at the department and all the, the digital editing systems, like, darn, those kids today got oh, yeah. it too easy. Yeah. Uh, that's what you get working living so near Apple. It makes right? you want to shake your fist at the younger generation, <laughs> as I do all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Uh, yeah, and so I'm guessing we we have a lot of the same story. Like you know, Bob Wilkins is huge in your life, and yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. That I was grateful to that and Creature Feature because it showed me that there were more people out there like that were interested in the things that I was. Yeah, you know, and it, it's what's so funny is uh, yeah, I had an older brother who, you know, kind of, I think, led me into Bob Wilkins initially. But, you know, I grew up watching all the afternoon, you know, Gamera, Godzilla, Planet of the Apes movies that would be on. Um, but I remember, you know, walking into the, the Fry's grocery store and seeing famous monsters on the rack. Mm. And thinking, how cool is this? Now, granted, you know, people will laugh. This, I think, the first issue I picked up had Battlestar Galactica on the cover, so it wasn't exactly <laughs> FM's golden age. But you know, for me, I was a Star Wars kid, right? So this it played right into that, and it introduced me to all the classics because Forey was great about you know, even though they were certainly uh, taking advantage of the interest in the contemporary cinema. There was always room for the articles on Karloff and Lugosi and Lon Chaney. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, w I would have to say that is the one consistent thing about all of our guests, all, almost all of our guests, mm -hmm. is uh, more than anything else, famous monsters. And Fango, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I think those those publications, and even like kind of the war and stuff, was like, they were, they were like, for me, anyway, they were like letters that I would get right. from this other world that like, was, oh, I so wanted to live there. And yeah. here's where all these notes about things. And and what I got from it was, I'm not alone. Yeah, exactly. There's, that's my holy point. Holy shit, there's other people out there that like the same weird yeah. shit that I do. And yeah. oddly enough, those people weren't in school, and they weren't right next to you, but no. you knew they were out there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And then with the, of course, with the internet, that was another thing that that did that's, that that's to help us find. It helps to help us all find each other. It helped us find each other, but I think it also, uh, I don't know, made it less. Yeah, you know, like when, okay, <laughs> like when you like something, and then the hipster kids like latch onto it and they fucking ruin it. That's <laughs> so funny. That's kind of like how I feel. Old about man that. yells at yeah. cloud. God damn it! <laughs> Get off my fucking lawn. But you know the the thing that always <coughs> hit me as far as kind of the technological advances, having grown up in the the pre VCR era, mm -hmm. was you know we've got that shared experience of you'd get the TV guide, you'd flip through, you'd mark down what was on and when, and you know if Planet of the Apes was on at one in the morning, you got it. That's when you saw it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and or you know that you'd read about these films, you'd see a still in famous monsters, and think, oh wow, someday maybe, yeah, I'll be able to see where that came from, right? And, and now, you know, now we live in a world where, yeah, you want to see where that came from? Go yeah, online, right yeah, and uh, and there it is. And well, now it's not a question of seeing it; it's 
yeah, I've got all these things, but now I have no time to consume <laughs> all these <laughs> Well, that was the hope of the whole VCR thing, where now not only were you able to get some of those films that you had seen in things like um, like famous monsters or whatever, right. but also now you're 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 getting access to things like you know Deep Red, and now you're finding like who's Fulci, and then this whole other world opens up to you, and right. yeah. and it was tangible and with tape trading and that kind of thing. Yep, amazing. Talk about generation loss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the, thing, the level of quality you would put up with to just to see something in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, yeah. I remember watching, a, a, I think it's The Psychic the first time, and my wife walked by, and she goes, what are you watching? I go, I think it's The Psychic, because <laughs> it's, it's like watching porn <laughs> through a discrambler. I'm getting pieces That's of That's exactly it. what I was going to say. It yeah. Was like, it was like, yeah, it was like, I, I'm not 100% sure what I'm watching, but I recognize that scene, mm. that spot. That I hear Vincent Price. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. So were you, a, as you grew up and through all this schooling and stuff, uh, uh, and being a fan, were you compelled to document what you thought of, about the things you were watching? You know, it, it's kind of interesting because I think something that's been a kind of a constant in my life is... When I have a passion for something, I feel obligated to evangelize it. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I was always big on sharing things. Like if I saw a movie that I really liked, I would tell everybody about it. I'd try and drag my friends to go see it. If I read a book that I liked, I would buy extra copies and give those to people to say, you've got to read this book. And so as the opportunity kind of started to present itself to, to write... I had, you know, I had played with writing fiction. I had, you know, written fiction in college, um, and enjoyed it. But in in the classic fashion of writers, I could not write fiction. Mm. And and that was kind of the key thing that I realized. And a lot of people say it: if you cannot do it, then it's not it's not something. It's not your passion. It's not what you need to be doing. People that want to write can't not write right and so when i kind of realized that i i channeled more of my energy into kind of the nonfiction side of things talking about things um again you know evangelizing the things that i had an interest in and that's that's where i've kind of stayed um for most of the years in, in the writing that i've done has been that sort of thing is this about the time that you're you're running into people like Peter Amantino and and that kind of thing, and the, the early stages of Scream Factory are starting to come together? Yeah, so I was I was working in a bookstore, so this is while I was in college, um, and you know I had strong opinions about things, and one of those was that you know bookstores should have a horror section, and my manager at the time. Um, kind of acquiesced to my continued request and said, okay, let's try it out. Let me put together a horror section. And within a few months, that section of the store was generating sales and kind of the top um, of the store sales on a weekly basis. So we could actually see, hey, things that you're ordering for the store that normally wouldn't be here are selling. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, this is actually working. We're developing a clientele. And so I started to do a small newsletter where I'd kind of talk about, you know, books that were coming out and reviews of books that were coming out. I made a lot of friends in New York publishing houses, which was great. They would send me things. And I started to meet authors because we would, you know, we had Robert McCammon, we had Dan Simmons, 
Um, we very nearly had Dave Scow, um, mm. if not for you know earthquakes in the <laughs> in the late eighties. Right. Um, but I got to know these folks, and I would go to the world fantasy conventions and meet them, um, and kind of build out this network of these folks who, you know, some of them were very interested in who I was because I worked at a chain bookstore and was having some influence on what was going on uh, in terms of book sales. Um, and others were just happy to see somebody who was passionate about books who was willing to go that extra mile to help, you know, get the word out on things. Um, but that's where I met Peter. Peter came into the bookstore one day. They had just put out the first issue of Scream Factory, and um, he basically said, hey, why don't, you, why don't you come on board with what we're doing here? And... You know, next thing I know, I'm uh, one of the co-editors of this. <laughs> thing. So, you know, and, and I always say the reason being is because it allowed them to not pay me anymore. It's like, because well, now I'm I'm part of the magazine, so I'm just working for it like everybody else. Yeah, I I wish I had a dime for every time someone I know in publishing goes, and the next thing I knew. <laughs> that happened to us, where you're like, the next thing you know, your house smells like newsprint. Holy you're, crap. You're in debt. You, you have, you're publishing. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, awesome. So, so, so that was, that was kind of where it all, you know, the rubber hit the road in terms of being involved in publishing and um, and doing more regular writing and, and again, interacting with this community of... Uh, Writers and artists. Mm-hmm. And you still run with Scow, right? Yeah, David. David is is a really good friend. Who again, it just it grew out of, um, you know, the, those early days working in the bookstore, and you know when I would go down to, you know, Pete and I would go down to Hollywood at least every year mm-hmm. to uh, do a big book show, and it was always one of those things like, hey, let's get together for lunch while we're down there, and you know. Have maintained this relationship for God in almost thirty years now. Scout just rocks. He just rocks. Uh, so tell me about over the years with Scream Factory. Was it ever? Was it always a passion thing, or did it ever threaten to become like overtake your your main source of income? <laughs> um, never, never got there. Good, but but <laughs> it did. You know, Scream Factory got to the point. You know, the first several issues, it was. It started off uh, Pete Infantino, Clifford Brooks, and Joe Lopez, who had spun out of House Carfax, which mm-hmm. you were involved in. Yes, sir. Um, they brought me in shortly after Robert Morish uh, got involved, and then Cliff and Joe stepped away. And really, thanks to Bob, um, who had you know some grander visions than I think Peter and I ever did. Uh, we really kind of were able to take the magazine to the next level, making the move, you know, through multiple formats of paper quality and print quality up to where we were doing in newsprint and starting to get real distribution. You know, by the the time we finished, we were doing thousands of copies. You know, we were in uh, Barnes & Noble. You know, you could actually get our magazine on the newsstand. Mm. Um, but oddly enough... It's one of those kinds of successes that can kill you uh, because when you start to get that sort of distribution, it's exciting because you've got big, big buyers that are buying thousands and thousands of copies. Mm -hmm. But they pay you after the third issue ships, Mm -hmm. and they deduct the 
you know, the returns that they get. Right. And so basically, if you're not doing a monthly magazine, which we weren't, we were, you know, we were a quarterly magazine, but honestly, in the the years that we were publishing, we did about 20 issues. I don't think we ever got four out in a year. Maybe one year we got four out in a year. But in terms of expecting that money to be coming in and having to pay the printing bills on the one that, you know, okay, the orders are this, so we have to pay for this many, the risk was always that someday they might just pull the rug out from under us and say, mm-hmm. yeah, we're, you know, we want to order 2000 and we're going to return 2000 so yeah. basically you have to ship those to us for free. Or, um, or worse, what we encountered was, as they were making the change over to all, like, digital accounting and what have you, was... The idea is that they they don't send you your books back. They just rip the cover oh, no. off, right? Oh, no, yeah, right, 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 right. or the masthead, and yeah. then that changed to where you got a letter. It was an affidavit, like, oh yeah, we out of the four thousand you sent us, we destroyed thirty five hundred of them, right? And you're yeah. just supposed to go, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I I I remember going into B. Dalton and I'd say, hey, there's there's twenty copies of the new issue on the shelf. This is great. And going back two days later, and there were none. And knowing it wasn't because that was a must-have issue of the Scream Factory. Right. <laughs> I knew it was the, oh, damn it, i got to put this new issue of, you know, Entertainment Weekly's, you know, hot hits of the summer. Well, this is as good a spot as any. I'm going to take this other thing off the shelf, put yeah. these here, and right. those other ones go away. I, I uh, We used to get... We would go into stores and, and employees would tell us, like, oh, we, we would identify ourselves and go, yeah, we put this book out... And we'd have employees go, oh, yeah, I love it. I promo your shit as soon as it comes in. It's like, what? You? Oh, yeah, I tear the cover off and I take it home. I really love your book. And I'm like, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fucking kills me. Absolutely so, kills me. So we, you know, we were successful um, despite all those risks. You know, we were actually having decent sell-through of the magazine. Um, but we also kind of got to the point where we were just kind of burnt out. And it was a lot of effort. And... I think when it finally came down to it, we said, let's wrap this up because it was, it was no longer the fun it had been. And even though we were at a point where, you know, the, the critical response we were receiving was great. People really, really loved it. You know, the people that, that got the magazine really dug what we were doing and that was great. But, you know, we were all kind of going different directions. We had, you know, our own lives that were, you know, pulling at us, and we just said, you know, maybe it's time to, to put this to bed. Um, and so we did. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's better that than the other thing that you were describing about sending out 2,000 books and getting 2,000 yeah, right, exactly. That's better. And, and, and Target, or Target, uh, Tower was going away, and Tower was yeah. one of those wonderful markets for anybody in small press, because mm-hmm. they bought non-returnable. You sent them to Tower, they paid you, Yeah. and by God, if they didn't sell them, they'd sell them to their warehouse stores and they'd sell them for less. But you didn't have to worry about anybody coming back. That was money in your pocket to help pay the printing bill. And they took a chance. We, when we sent them, when we pitched them carrying our first uh, issue, we literally sent them printouts from the laser printer. Like, this is yeah. kind of what it's going to look like. And they're right. like, good enough. So That's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so now you've got this uh, best of Screen Factory coming out from Cemetery Dance. Who kudos on that? Getting them behind you is a good. Is a good that's cool. That's very cool. Well, you know the funny thing is, <laughs> and God bless him. You know Bob Robert Morish, who was one of the, the editors of Screen Factory. When we kind of wrapped up, 
Um, Peter and I kind of went back to our grassroots, uh, low-budget sort of, you know, roots and did a digest called Bare Bones. But Bob went on to edit Cemetery Dance Magazine with Rich Chismar mm. for many, many years. And Rich Chismar had done, they had done a best of Cemetery Dance book, kind of the best of the fiction from the magazine, and they had done best of the horror show, which was another classic small press horror magazine in the 80s. And along about 2011, maybe, um, Bob contacted Peter and I out of the blue and said, hey, you know, Rich is kind of interested in doing Best of Scream Factory. What do you guys think? And my initial response was, well, that'd be awesome. I'd love to have kind of a permanent, you know, collection of the magazine on the shelf and Lord knows it's not a project that I'll ever take on because of the you know, the logistical challenges and costs involved. Um, but we were all kind of jazzed about it. We sat down and you know did a short list of who we'd want in there and what it would be, and things kind of went silent for oh, a year or two maybe. And it was like, all right, well, it was a nice idea, but it's just not going to happen. And a couple years later, Bob came back and said, hey, Jismar, you know, he's, he's Johnson to do this book. He'd like to put this book out. And I was like, well, okay, but if we're going to do it, we just need to know it's really going to happen. And he's like, no, no, he really wants to do it. So we kind of went back, reached out to our contributors. We, The three of us, the three editors, kind of went through all the issues of the magazine, you know, made our own picks of what we thought should be in it and compared notes. And things aligned pretty well. Um, as far as what our ultimate selections were and put it all together. Bob did all the layout and design because basically he was redesigning it from, you know, the, the magazines. We, most of the files didn't still exist, although uh, fortunately he had some of the, the article files to work from. But basically rebuilt it into a 600-page monolith, um, which we turned in, I think, right after the first of the year in 2014 it's like okay here it comes and uh here we are 2018 october <laughs> and it's the book the book has been printed and it's um as close to on route to us as is physically possible though we're just waiting for them to arrive nice. so it's 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 this weird sense of uh this has been a long gestating project but uh, I'm really looking forward to having a huge book land on the doorstep one of these days. That'll be so cool. Well, I just love like the stuff you guys have pulled out. It's it's all over the place, and and and, and I mean that in such a good way. You cover stuff like we cover stuff. <laughs> like <it's, laughs> yeah. Just uh, looking through your table of contents, there's there's monsters, natural horrors, Godzilla, HPL, Frankenstein, serial killers, zombies, comics. It just goes on and on and on. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, we've had we had Thomas DJ on who is who's yeah. one of the writers in here. We had him on for an anthology show, and uh, we're t we keep trying to get him back. Um, but it's just looking over the book. I just think I'm. Re I, it's like I wanted to read it all, and I was I ain't got time to read it all right. before right. you guys talk to him. So great, so comprehensive, and I think what's nice is it 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 feels like it's a. Uh, uh, like a legitimization of of our what, what did I hear once about our disreputable genre? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's awesome. And so 
this book is going to be available through both Cemetery Dance and your site, or just through places like Amazon and Barnes and Noble and stuff? You know, the interesting thing. So Cemetery Dance, we had we had kind of talked about what they wanted to do as far as you know print runs and things, and they did a for this initial run. I want to say it's 450 numbered signed editions signed by the three editors who you know nobody's dying for our autographs <laughs> but uh but then there's kind of a, a deluxe lettered edition that they did there's not currently a trade edition lined up wow but as of right now or as of the last i heard they were down to the last few dozen copies for sale wow um, so i don't know if that will change i don't know if they are planning to do a trade edition depending on how you know if if they are out of print on publication for the limited mm-hmm. um but again as i said as much as i wanted to have this book you know this isn't like a stephen king book where you say well we know we're going to make our money back on that one right, right. <laughs> yeah 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 so this is this is i think it's a i think it's a labor of love for them as well and again i think rich um likes the idea of having done these best of 80s magazines, you know, including, you know, the one he was involved in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as a, as a testament to that era in kind of the horror genre. So, you know, we're thrilled to have it out there at all. Uh, but I don't think any will get to Amazon just because I think there were so uh, so few of them left, at least in the last few months. Maybe through collector's markets. Or right. Yeah, yeah, certainly um, any, anybody that, that carries cemetery dance titles. Yeah. Uh, God, they make their yeah, books are so nice. Yeah, the big I've seen these slipcover cases yeah. sets they do. Mm-hmm. And fucking awesome. So tell me a little about Dreams and Visions Press. This this was the next progression, right? Well, yeah. So you know, having done the you know with Deadline Press, which is what we were as a publishing company doing Scream Factory, we had done a couple books. Mm-hmm. Um, we started off doing some very um, very small press centric things. We did uh, a couple short story collections that were the best fiction in the small press called Quick Chills. And then we uh, we struck gold through a, a meeting with Richard Lehman, who was another author that I had known uh, from working in the bookstore. Mm. I had arranged a signing with him that only later on did I realize was only the second book signing he had ever done. <laughs> um, but we had kind of befriended him, and Pete and I were down, I want to say, at a world horror convention in um, Southern California and said, hey, we'd like to do a collection of your short fiction. And he said, let me think about it, and I'll get back to you. And it's so funny, he got back to us and said, you know, I, I was really excited about it, but more importantly... Anne was really excited about his wife. Mm. She said, and so, so yeah, let's do this. And we did a, a short story collection called A Good Secret Place, which was uh, most of his short fiction published up to that point, plus he wrote several news stories. And it did really well for us. Um, we were very excited. It kind of set us on a new path, thinking this is, this is what we want to be doing. We'll do these, these kind of books. And we went on. We actually published another short story collection, um, Cages, which was an Ed Gorman collection. But it seemed like every other project we tried to get off the ground, you know, died on the runway for one reason or another. Um, and and actually, as we were kind of done with Scream Factory and had kind of said goodbye to Dreams and Visions Press, 
one of the things Pete and I had decided to do with our new little bare bones venture was we said, well, let's let's follow up with Dick and do kind of a reader's guide to Richard Lehman. And he was interested in that. We just thought it would be a little, you know, saddle-stitched, you know, Digest magazine that we did. And then he came back to us and he said, you know, guys, he's like, this has gotten, I started working on this. He said, it's gotten bigger. Would you be interested in doing a book? And he kind of pitched us on a book, which became A Writer's Tale, which was all about kind of his career, um, navigating kind of New York publishing, where he had had successes, where he had had challenges. Um, fascinating if you were a fan of his, even more fascinating if you were just interested in breaking into publishing and mm-hmm. the, the, the trials and tribulations involved with that. And it's one of the books that I'm proudest of that we published. And it sold okay, uh, but it was, you know, it wasn't a huge seller. It didn't fly right off the shelves. And then unfortunately, when Dick passed away, the phone started ringing off the hook and everybody wanted copies of this book. Mm. And and Pete and I felt really awkward about that because here it is, we're dealing with, the loss of somebody who had become a really close friend of ours and all these people are interested in getting copies of our book many of whom who had never picked up the phone to order copies of the book which had been available for you know some time right and so we basically just started telling people look you know right now we're not we're not doing anything we're just going to put everything on hold until we've had some time to process this and made a lot of people angry they thought, oh, you you know, you, you should sell them. You're doing them a disservice, which, you know, kind of rubbed us the wrong way. But we thought, well, what's the right thing to do? And basically Pete and I agreed. We said, you know, we don't, we want to sell these books. We want to get them out there. We don't want to mark them up and take advantage of the fact that, you know, there's interest now that he's dead. But we said we we didn't feel comfortable making any more money off the book. And so basically all the money we made selling the remainder of the copies, we just passed through to his wife and daughter. Because for us, you know, this was Dick's book, and he, he entrusted it to us, mm-hmm. and we were proud to have done it. But, you know, again, we just it's, it's tough to be in that spot and try and figure out what's the right thing to do. I think you did it. I think you, that's, I was just, that's such a stand-up thing to do, man. That really is. I, kudos for that. But uh, but doing that, you know, kind of got the a, a bit of the the bug back to you know this this publishing can be fun <laughs> sometimes not all not all those aspects of it. <laughs> but you know, fast fast forward several years later, um, a, a friend of mine, Stan Stice, and I became friends with the artist Ralph McQuarrie, who was famous for having done, you know, much of the design work on the original Star Wars and certainly the original trilogy. And at that time, you know, we'd spend time with Ralph. He lived up in Berkeley and just visiting and talking about things other than Star Wars. And he'd pull things out of drawers and shelves and show us artwork that he had done. And it seemed like every time we'd see him, there'd be something else. We're like, wait, you, you did the poster to legend of boggy Creek or it's it's like, you you worked on Raiders of the Lost Ark, so when they opened the the Bible to show the drawing of the artwork, that was your piece. And he was always kind of like, yeah, it's just something else I did. Wow. And and we got this bug of it's like there needs to be a book of this stuff because it's all just sitting in drawers and no one even knows this. Right. And 
you know, my my buddy Stan was like, I we need to do we need to do this, and so he basically started to put together laying out a book, and I'm like, no worries, I got this. We published before, not really thinking about the differences between publishing a you know a 300 page uh, text based book versus a 400 page you know coffee table book that's full color and yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> all that that entails. Your file size um, goes up. <laughs> oh yeah, your printing your printing costs do too. Uh, you, you don't you don't find the, uh, the the small presses in Michigan that can handle that job. No, in a, you don't. Cost effective way, but uh, but we had basically, you know, we mapped this all out. We ran it by Ralph. Said Ralph, this is what we want to do, and he's like, well, you know, you're going to have to get you know, Lucasfilm's permission. And we said, don't you worry about it. You know, being young and naive and um, somewhat uh, full of ourselves. <laughs> Fearless, there's a good word. There you go. We basically, we, we got a meeting with some folks at Lucasfilm that we had relationships with, and we went in and said, here's, here's this book that we want to do, and we know you're not going to let us do this book, so what we're going to do is we're going to cut it in half. We're going to do a book of all Ralph's non-Star Wars work, and then, after we've proved ourselves, you're going to let us do a book of his Star Wars work. And they kindly patted us on the head and said, just hang on, let's, let's you know, consider this. They said, leave your sample with us and, uh, and give, us, give us about a month. They said, there's some changes coming on in the publishing arm, but let, you know, leave this with us, we'll get back to you. And a month later, like clockwork, they got in touch with us and said, okay, everybody's excited about this, what do you need? Nice. And we were kind of like, How cool uh, is that? it's like, wait, this is this is Lucasfilm. This is the company that everybody would tell you would be the hardest company to work with in terms of licensing, and and they're asking us what we want. That's cool. So we we basically just said, well, we need yeah, access to the assets. We need to know what you have, and they're like, okay. And of all the projects I've worked on where we've had a licensing deal, I honestly can say. None has been, nor do I expect one will ever be, as smooth a process as the one with Lucasfilm was. That's awesome. And and I credit it all to the fact that I think at some point it went up to the chain, hit George Lucas, and I think he said, for Ralph, whatever they want. Nice. Partially because I think they knew, they, they were clear that we weren't trying to just um, take advantage of their property they recognized that we were really interested in doing Ralph justice and, you know, bless them for realizing that we couldn't do Ralph justice without including Star Wars as part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they let us, they let us, you know, basically gave us keys to the kingdom. At one point they called us and said, we're about to ship 10,000 slides back to ILM. Do you have any interest in coming down and going through them? To do which you I? say, um, what time do we get there? <laughs> right. On my way. Oh, it's, like, it's like I've 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 seen thousands of slides of models of uh walkers in the snow. Dude. And and that's not too many. Knowing <laughs> knowing that they, how big a Star Wars fan you are, I mean that's gotta be like It was just it was a blast. But but I the coolest thing about it was going through stuff and finding that in the ILM slides were photos of Ralph, were photos of Ralph's paintings that guys like Dennis Murin had taken because they'd set Ralph's paintings up on a chair and take pictures of his art. <laughs> and and in terms of 
the pure gold that we found, there were there were instances of finding images where Ralph had gone back and repainted them, and we found versions of the paintings that were otherwise lost. Wow, that were covered Ooh, by that's paint. cool. And uh, and so it was so thrilling. And I remember the first time we we had a case like that. It was just so exciting waiting for the digital asset to come back. And when they got all this stuff back, this one painting wasn't in the group. And we're like, no, 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 there's this other painting of, you know, the TIE fighter cockpit. And they're like, oh, no, no, we already have that digital asset. And we're like, no, you don't understand. It's like you've got a different version of that digital asset. It's like you've, you're risking losing that forever. And they went back and they scanned it, and we were able to kind of rescue that. But, you know, just the opportunity to do something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was was great and it was great for us and uh, it was great for Ralph to kind of capture some of that. Yeah. Yeah. But but that first book, you know, we did. You know, I basically uh, wrote the biggest credit card check in my life to pay for, <laughs> um, in the hopes that the book would sell, and not really concerned because if it didn't, at least we would have the book that we wanted on our shelves. Um, but the good news is the book did sell. Um, I'm proud to say that it, we paid Ralph in royalties more than George paid him to do the work for Star Wars originally. Um, but but that through that process, Dreams and Visions Press was born, and you know got me back into this world of you know small press publishing again. Which again, it's not my day job, but it's certainly. Uh, a certainly fun place to play. <laughs> well, you're pu- the books you're putting out are gorgeous. The McCory Mac- Mac- books, even as someone who is n- decidedly not a Star Wars fan, I look at it and it's just, it's a drool fan. It's beautiful. Just study. You know, one of the things about McCory um, was that it was very... Um, like, it wasn't, over- it wasn't too busy with detail. You know, it was like it was like an impressionistic uh, view of that world, mm-hmm. and that I love that because it made you fill in all the gaps in your head. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He was, and you know, for somebody who kind of came out of doing industrial design, um, no, no one knew he had this in him. George didn't know he had this in him. George had seen a handful of paintings that he had done for uh, his, you know, college buddies Hal Barwood and Matthew Robbins. And it was just a fluke that they had, that Ralph had done those paintings because one of them had met Ralph when he was at Boeing, you know, painting airplanes. Um, wow. But, you know, just through this twist of fate, he landed in this job and discovered, as we all did, that he had this immense talent that wasn't refined to just doing machinery or aliens or, you know, creatures and things. He could do anything. Yeah, he right. could do landscapes. You know, he he just had such a measurable talent, and and a lot of people recognized that, and and he continued to get work. You know, after Star Wars, because he was such a rich um, source of inspiration for filmmakers. Was how long after this was the Tomb Raider book coming out? Oh gosh, so we did. Uh, we did a number of Ralph projects. We did we did our big. 400 page, 12 by 15 hardcover. Um, then we were going to Japan for the 30th anniversary of Star Wars in 2008 and thought, wouldn't it be cool to do a Japanese translation of this book, but just kind of focus on the Star Wars art? 
and then found ourselves publishing a book in Japanese, which was kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then we then the the Tomb Raider property came about because one of our other friends was a big fan of that franchise and was really interested in uh, doing something, and we thought, well, what the heck? I was less involved in the uh, the kind of creative side of that book um, because, like I said, I had another friend, Stefan, who was uh, really the the spearhead. But it, you know, it, we learned some lessons in licensing again. Similarly, that you know, how blessed we were with the Lucasfilm arrangement, where you know, to the point of publishing the book, Lucasfilm never asked us to see a copy or approve it, which is unheard of. Wow. Whereas uh, the Square Enix, the company that owned the Tomb Raider franchise, would randomly say, "Oh, you can't can't use this art, or we don't want you to use these things," and it was completely arbitrary it's like okay um so it was was a much more challenging proposition um and then also you know the in terms of marketability though people who are fans of the franchise will drop you know the 70 dollars to buy a game the day it comes out every time there's a new game Mm -hmm. um a lot of those people look at books and say books it's like (laughs) Why, why would I? Why would I have a book? Or, you know, it's like, yeah, I'd be interested in a book that was, you know, a paperback for twenty dollars and not a big two-volume hardcover set. Right, right. Um, so it's it's done well over time, but it, you know, it was a it was a tougher sell. Um, though again, you know, the people that that are into that sort of thing loved what the book was. Yeah. It really, it, it had a, a fan. Uh, following, but well, I just yeah. saw the work that went into it. When I saw this finished product, I know the work that went into it, and it's it's stunning stuff. Was it? Did it cover the the franchise up to the new iteration of it, or did it include? Yeah, it, it was it was everything through the the current version of the game at the time, which I can't even recall what it was, but it was now you know yeah. it's several years back, so several yeah, iterations yeah. back. Yeah. But you know, in some of the cases, the the work that was done by by our friend Stefan Schultz. Just tracking down assets, particularly on the early early things, um, got some amazing stuff. Because back in those days, there you know there wasn't the same sorts of uh, artwork there is now. These days, it's like making a film. You know, the amount of assets that are generated throughout the course of developing a game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but back in the day, it's like with low res graphics. It was a much different proposition, and and again tougher to put their hands on everything. Wow! Wow! Um, shifting gears for a minute, I want to ask you about your, your fascination with I Am Legend. Yes. Fascination's a, a, a polite way to, you, to put it. How close are you to having every edition of this thing? Um, I expect that I'm closer than anyone else on this planet. <laughs> However, um, I've got 155 different versions from around the world. Wow. I am aware of, I'd say sixteen to twenty more that exist that oh, I don't man. have, uh-huh. and you know, and it's a book that you know has been in print since nineteen fifty four, and so there are new iterations coming out all the time. Uh-huh. Um, so this is kind of a never ending quest I'm on, but but as far as how that happened and who's to blame, um, that's uh, that's goes back to George Romero. Yeah. Is when I was you know when I was a kid and I saw Night of the Living Dead, it had such a profound impact on me that it kind of changed my worldview in a lot of ways. I just loved that movie so much. I, and oh, go ahead. I was just going to say I'm interested because that's my favorite book of all time, and 
uh, are the majority of the um, additions that you have that story and then other short stories or are there bound editions out there that are just I Am Legend? <clears throat> so until 1995, it was primarily just I Am Legend on its own. And then when Tor released it, they put it out combined with a bunch of short stories. And a lot of the subsequent publications have followed that format. It's been I Am Legend and others. Um, just basically to make it a thicker book. Sure, it's, a, it's, it's not a long book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it, it, up to that point, it had most often been sold solely as the, the novel on its own. <clears throat> but, but kind of going back to, you know, how Night of the Living Dead got me to that, my brother worked in a library uh, when he was 16, and I remember him coming home one day with a book. It had a really kind of weird cover. Um, it was the first Walker hardcover that was published in 1970. And I asked him what he was reading, and he said, oh, this is the book that Night of the Living Dead was based on. And boom, I'm like, oh, I, I want to read it as soon as you're done. And <clears throat> I remember sitting down with it on you know a Saturday afternoon and starting it and finishing it. And it was the first adult novel that I had read in a single sitting and had as much or more of an impact on me than seeing Night of the Living Dead had in terms of both not wanting to put it down and just changing my perception about what a fiction experience could be, you know, reading a novel. Sure. Um, and, you know, from then on, I remember f- for years I'd go to used bookstores or I'd go to, you know, library book sales hoping to someday find a copy of this book. And and I remember exactly where I was at uh, the Ashby Bart Station uh, in Berkeley and finding a, a copy of a what, 1964, I think, Bantam uh, edition for 25 cents. I'm feeling like, oh, my God, I finally have my <laughs> own copy. I don't have to keep going to the library and, you know, taking it out of the library. Um, and I remember finding my first hardcover at, you know, a, a flea market. Uh, at Foothill College out here in, in the Bay Area. <laughs> and the same sort of thing. If somebody had the science fiction book club edition for 25 cents at a, at a flea market, and I thought, 25 cents, do these people know that this is gold? Mm. Um, and it just came to be something that over the years, I, you know, if I was in a bookstore and they had a copy, I would buy it. Sure. didn't matter if I already had that edition. Uh, it was more exciting if I came across a copy that I didn't already have. Um, but over time, I, it's, it, they grew and grew, and if I got extra copies, I'd hand them out to friends and say, you've got to read this. Um, and then, you know, the Internet came, and suddenly the, uh, the international world became more accessible. Yeah. Um, Hello, and, eBay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, my, my biggest boon was uh, I was down at this paperback collectible show they do every spring in L.A., and a friend of mine said, hey, you know, have you been over to Dark Delicacies on this trip? Uh-oh. You know, uh. the wonder, wonderful Dark Delicacies. <laughs> I'm like, no, you know, we haven't been over there this time. We weren't probably weren't going to make it. And he says, well, I was over there the other day. They've got a bunch of foreign editions of Richard Matheson books. And I'm like, Record scratch. <laughs> I was like, excuse me? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, hey, uh, would you mind driving me over there right now? 
Nice. So, so he drives me over to the store, and we go in, and I see they've got, I think they had a couple copies. They had like a French hardcover. And I can't remember exactly what else they had right there. And I was talking to Sue, and I said, oh, you know, if you get any more of these. And she's like, oh, well, let me show you some of the ones we had. Somebody just bought, and we're shipping them to them. And she pulls out maybe half a dozen books and shows them to me. And one by one, I'm looking at these things and drooling, thinking, oh, my God, I've missed it. They slipped through my fingers. Ah. <laughs> and she says, well, these are all coming from, you know, Richard's personal collection. So we, we may be getting more. And I basically told her, anything you get, I will buy. If I, if I don't already have it, no questions asked. Unfortunately, all the editions that that other person had bought, he had at least one more of. Nice. <laughs> um, and so I ended up with, you know, quite a few copies of I Am Legend that came out of his personal collection, all of which were signed, which didn't really mean as much to me. I had met him several times and gotten copies signed. For me, it was more about, you know, this is a, a copy from Brazil. This is yeah. a copy from Japan, you know, things that it's like. You're, you're Great White Whale. Oh, it's just—it's just amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, let me let me ask you. I know why the book is uh, so important to me. What do you think it was that resonated with you? And I—I I don't mean the collecting and stuff, but just the sure. story. Um, you know, it's there's so much about it that resonates with me each time I go back and reread it, but. Part of it is just this this journey this one character was on, and his ultimately kind of this, the realization that comes to him at the end of the book is so good, and it's just and it's so powerful. And at the same time, I didn't, I never took it as defeat. I never took it as like the the Night of the Living Dead scenario, which is we've we've stuck with this character through the horrible experience of this night, and he's finally survived and then he's shot and killed, right. which is not a victorious thing at all. It's all downside. Whereas in the novel, I always felt like uh, he's, he's realized who he, is, you know, who he is in this new world, he's come to terms with that, and he's going out on his own terms. Mm -hmm. And there's just something about that that just really resonated with me, and I thought, wow, to kind of, you know, kind of have this life experience that you, you, know, you struggle to stay alive, and then you just get to a point where you're like, I'm okay, and I'm okay kind of stopping right here. Uh, just was really powerful. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, there, there are elements of the Shrinking Man that are kind of like that. It's a little more spiritual and a little more uplifting than I Am Legend. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but again, I Am Legend just had so many things where I thought, as a writer, Matheson just knew what he was doing. He, he, it was almost as if he said, I dare you to put down this book at the end of every chapter. It's like the way you know, you'd be going along, you'd be going along, and he's like, and then he looked at his watch, and it was still 3 o'clock, and he realized his watch had stopped. And you're like, oh my God, I've got to, I've got to find out what happens next. Or, <laughs> I don't want to go into the other spoilers, but you know, when he talks about Ben Portman or the dog or these other things, it's like every one of those was like, oh yeah, like I can stop reading now. Um, just, it's compact, it's, you know, just, just such a powerful work of fiction that I, I've not read anything. I've read a lot of books that I love greatly and that I admire greatly, 
but that one is kind of up on a shelf, literally, <laughs> by itself, <laughs> because it, it has just stayed with me. And it's lost, it's lost none of that power. I, you know, I could sit down and start reading it right now and just get caught up in it again. Um, right. And, and that's, that's not, to, not to kill any projects that I would ever do in the future, but that is, that's my, one of my dream projects is I want to do an annotated version of that book um, and do it in oh, such a way. Great. That would be so cool, yeah. yeah it's yeah, just yeah. I, I just love it so much that, and again, you know, all, all the projects, you, you could probably tell there's some similarity in most of the things that I talk about are real passion projects. Yeah. And the kinds of things that I'm doing, first and foremost, because I want them. And if somebody else wants them, even better. But you know what? If not, I want it. If I'm selfish, I'm going to do it that way. Sure, sure. Gee, if only someone heck would do a really good, in-depth look at Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Oh, what? What? <laughs> As it turns out. As it turns out. <laughs> tell me about the Night of the Living Dead book. So th- this is another one of those things where, you know, again, my 25 years ago, while we were working on Scream Factory... Uh, the opportunity came up to do kind of a a tribute, a special magazine um, based on Night of Living Dead. And I thought that was going to be my marker. That was going to be my love letter back to Night of the Living Dead. Um, And then catapult myself, you know, years into the future. um, What year was it? Well, the 40th, 40th anniversary. So 10 years ago, there were things starting to happen in Pittsburgh, you know, the, some of the original filmmakers were uh, spinning things up to kind of get some activities going again. And I went back out. I had been out because I used to have a, my real job. We had an office in downtown Pittsburgh, and so I used to go out uh, to Pennsylvania. And I'd been to the cemetery. I'd been to the mall. Um, and I decided to go back out when they did an anniversary celebration of 45th anniversary, uh, Living Dead Festival. Gary Striner, one of the original Image 10 members, helped put it on, and they were they had been raising money to fix the chapel at the Evans City Cemetery, mm, uh, which is going to get yeah. it's going to get torn down. Saved it, you know, a bunch fan support raised I don't know almost fifty thousand dollars to save it. But it was it was one of those things that going back out there, meeting these folks, uh, meeting a lot of the surviving actors I had met. The uh, the majority of the cast, the major cast, uh, they had a 25th anniversary convention in '93, which I went out for. Uh, but a lot of the the kind of uh, zombies, the ghouls, the locals that had played posse members, um, a lot of those folks showed up too. <clears throat> and one of the things that I had latched onto was uh, a friend of mine who kind of coordinates a lot of the uh, the guests for these events and all other events named Jim Serenella had he would print up photos for the people to sign and he always had the most amazing photos images I had never seen before and I'd kind of bug him and say Jim you need to put a book out of all of just all these photos and that was you know he's like yeah yeah whatever no I'm just, you know, that's silly I'm like, no, I, w- I would buy just a book that's just page after page of photos. And uh, going, I went out last year for the when they did the premiere of the 
4K restoration in Pittsburgh because mm-hmm. I wanted to be there for that. And at that point, I had kind of talked to Gary Streiner, who's one of the key, again, Image 10 members. I said, look, I really want to do this project. I want to do a coffee table book of photos. And Jim had already told me, look, if you, you work out the deal with Image 10 and I'll, I'll help you with the images because he's managed all these assets for all these years for them. And basically, I made my pitch. I said, look, this is what I want to do. Here's the, the deal that I can offer you guys. And again, it, I, though I don't want you to allow me to do it for this reason, it's a book that I really feel passionate about bringing into the world. And they very generously allowed me to do that. Um, we signed the papers on the license earlier this year and have been hard at work kind of assembling things, going through the images. There are a lot. There are amazing images. If you if you think of the coolest, rarest Night of the Living Dead image photo you've seen before, mm-hmm. that'll be in the book, but there will be others that you would not imagine existed. That is so cool. Um, That's very cool. So it's like every now and then things turn up where it's like, you know, an article online. It's like, oh, look at these rare color photos from Night of the Living Dead, which, you know, have been out for a while. You know, they appeared in Fangoria years ago. Um, but it's like, yeah, we, we've got those photos. We've got those color photos. But wait till you see some of the other color photos that I we've got. Oh, cool. did, you, um, did you get the chance to talk to George before he died? Um, not about this project. I had met but George had several before. times through the years um, yeah. and was able to um, fawn upon him how important <laughs> he was to me. You yeah. know, it, it, it's one of the, the sad things for me is the, the best of Scream Factory, my dedication was to Richard Matheson and George Romero for, you know, bringing me into horror fiction and film with I Am Legend and Night of the Living Dead. And I'm my my one disappointment with Best of Screen Factory is that neither of those men are around for me to hand a copy of the book and yeah, say, sure. thanks, here's a 20-pound brick to put on your doorstep. <laughs> um, but but again, those those two just, just meant the world to me. Um, and again, I, I, I'm honored that I did have a chance several times in each case throughout the years to express to them how much their work meant and uh, had been an inspiration to me. Uh, but I've been, I, you know, I, and I will continue to be talking with a lot of the surviving cast and crew um, to get recollections. You know, the, the goal of the book, it's kind of like the Macquarie book in a lot of the same ways. I'm trying to stay out of the way of the real value of the book, which is the imagery. Mm-hmm. I've got nice, big, full-page spreads. I've got, in some cases, two-page spreads of, you know, a, a photo spread across. You know, you open the book, and it's like, wow, there's this amazing image on two pages of this 10 by 12 hardcover, you know, bigger than you've ever seen before, but it just really has an impact uh, when you're flipping through it. Um and so the the writing will kind of support what's there and who these people are and some some bits of history, but it's not a it's not a this is not the making of Night of the Living Dead. This is not designed to be right. uh, a big textbook. Well, there's I'm really there's the zombies that ate Pittsburgh that already kind of covers a lot of that history stuff, right? Yeah, and and Jack Russo had done the complete Night of the Living Dead film book. Right. Um, there there are certain aspects. There are there's kind of apocrypha about Night of the Living Dead that. Um, you know, I'll try and kind of 
provide more information to be enlightening, you know, in addition to being a, of the master kind of um, collector of these uh, digital assets, Jim Sorrell is also an expert on Night of the Living Dead. I highly recommend you guys have him on to talk. You could have him talk Night of the Living Dead for hours and hours and hours. He, <laughs> he, he did the research and he put out the album They Won't Stay Dead, which is all the library tracks from Night of the Living Dead mm-hmm. um, yeah. a few years ago, he, and which is basically also what is behind the Waxworks vinyl release that uh, hopefully will be out before the end of the year. I don't, I don't think they've announced it a Very date cool. yet. Very cool. But, uh, but yeah, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of interesting stories and things that will be new to people. Um, but again, in, in terms of just from an image standpoint, if you're a fan of, of Night of the Living Dead, uh, this is going to be one of those things that you're going to turn pages and be like, oh, my God. Yeah. Do you have a target publication date? Um, it's going to, just based on the timeline of, of getting the book printed uh, in Asia and shipped back, that's a few-month process. I'm hoping to have things wrapped up with the, uh, the layout and the design and the finalization of the images before the end of the year. So you know, early next year is what I'm targeting right now. Excellent. But I'm... Uh, it, it's one of those kind of catch-22s. It's like, I want it in my hands today. <laughs> but I, I also, I, you know, it, you want it to it's got to be... It can be. Exactly, exactly. I, and I'm, again, I'm so particular about, you know, wanting it to be that perfect book to the point where, the, you know, even things like the, the page count right now is kind of in flux. Mm. I've, I've been targeting 128 pages, but I'm like... I'm ready to go to 144 in the blink of an eye. As, as we get to, you know, we're we're about two two thirds of the way through the story. The book will be kind of laid out in story order, um, which is is a fun way to kind of flip through it. Oh yeah. But but we're about to the point of the uh, the truck escape. As far as being, you know, we're pretty solid up to that point, and then that's where most of the work is left. Is kind of picking the final images for the. Uh, the last third, wow. and there's just a lot of amazing stuff. Oh, there's bet. a lot of amazing day for night zombie shots that people haven't seen, and and I'm a sucker. I'm like, oh, I want to squeeze it all in. I want to find <laughs> you know, right, for as right. much as possible. Yeah. Font size. <laughs> we, can, yeah. we can reduce that shit right away. Um, what about after that? Do you guys have plans? Or are you just gonna let um, wait for the I, next thing to come up that sparks your interest? Well, they're, they're like I said in in my future. Um, I hope there is a an I Am Legend of some way, shape, or form, but it, that's kind of back burner right now while I work on this book. There is one other thing that I've got. Um, one of the uh, one of the investors in Night of the Living Dead was a man named Richard Ritchie, and Richard, whose cousin Rudy is you know somewhat well known, he showed up in. Dawn of the Dead, he plays the ghoul in Night of the Living Dead, again, was one of the original Image 10 investors. But in 2013, when I was in uh, in Pennsylvania for one of the Living Dead festivals, I met Richard and had a really nice time uh, chatting with him. And as I was coming home from that trip, I was talking to my friend Jim, and he happened to drop the line of, well, you know he was the one that gave George I Am Legend. Oh, and wow. I thought, I just spent a weekend talking to the guy with the game ah, ah. George Iron Legend, and I didn't know that, and so we didn't discuss it at all. And so I thought, oh my gosh, I, got, I can't wait to get out and see him again. And so last year I got to spend some time with him talking about that specifically, 
and starting to hear more of his stories and, and came away from that weekend saying, Richard, you've got too many important stories of your own, but also relating to George, George pre latent image. So, you know, the, the short films that they were making just as, you know, George is a college dropout and, you know, doing films because they wanted to do films and yeah. early commercial work. Um, Richard was working for a New York ad company, brought them the Calgon job and basically came up with a concept for the whole Calgon, Calgonauts, you know, fantastic voyage riff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very cool. and, uh, and that was a big job for them that, you know, helped set them up. Um, you know, with some cash flow for a while. And again, then knowing that Richard was the one that gave George I Am Legend, it's like, well, that's critical. You know, without that happening, I Am, you know, without the I Am Legend influence, there's not Night of the Living Dead as we know it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I, I told Richard at the time, I said, we've got to do a, we've got to do a book that's your story that ties, you know, all these elements together. So he and I have worked together for the last year, and just when I was out for the 50th anniversary uh, just a week or two ago, um, he and I went down to the old latent image office on Fort Pitt Boulevard. They took us down in the basement, which was the basement they yeah. shot, the basement scene for Night of the Living Dead in. Yeah, I yeah. saw that photo. Uh, that that was photo was so cool. Awesome. And it's just, you know, it's just one of those things that it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm living this dream, and at the same time, I'm so excited that I'm going to help <clears throat> bring his story out too. So, yeah. so that's that's another project that is is in so development. Cool. So cool. So how that story. how do people keep track of all all that you're up to? I don't know how I keep track of all that. <laughs> um, so the the Night of the Living Dead book that's coming if uh, at our website dreamsandvisionspress.com there's an email they can send in uh, to, to sign up for an email update list. Um, that way people will know as soon as there's word on, you know, final specs for the book, anticipated release date, and, and obviously pre-orders. My plan is that there will be kind of a deluxe version of that book. Mm. Um, exactly how many copies and what that will be is still to be determined. Um, but you know, for that reason, that you know, that's it's good for people who are interested in that sort of thing to get on the list because I don't expect that uh, whatever limited quantity of those we do is going to last. Uh, but I'm on Facebook, right um, and you know, I've I've got a IamLegendArchive.com is my I Am Legend mm-hmm. uh, website where I kind of continue to talk all things I Am Legend when they come up. And uh, and Pete and I still do the bare bones e-zine, uh, which is barebonesez.blogspot.com. I just actually published an article on how I tracked down the first date that I watched Night of the Living Dead on Channel Two in the Bay Area. There you go. <laughs> It's like it's like useless information to ninety nine percent of the population, and very exciting to that small few who can be like, <laughs> right. me yeah, too, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> All right, well, cool. Thanks again for coming on, man. Like I said, oh, you were you were one of the people that we I wanted to get on here post haste. So uh, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back in just one second.
so cool to hear somebody so excited about yeah. it, really anything. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it's infectious, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like it, it makes me want to go home and reread I Am Legend. Oh, absolutely. Watch Night of the Living Dead. Do you know, um, the copy of I Am Legend that I have has this painting on the cover. It's just this sea of vampire faces. Right, 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 yeah. John owns the original. <laughs> he owns the original painting. The original painting. The painting is really badass. It's a painting. It's badass. It's but really it's like, cool. yeah, this that's the kind of level we're talking yeah, yeah, about yeah, with yeah, this yeah. guy. I John's awesome. I've known John for years, and it was always around. We grew up around the same area. We have a mutual friend, Kyle. And yeah, he's just an awesome guy. And and those books that the the like for example the Tomb Raider the, book the, is yeah fucking beautiful beautiful, beautiful. yeah. Anyway, moving on to second hour stuff. People who died. People who I died. I really do need to get that little sound file. Yeah. That's funny. Those are people who died. <laughs> died. Uh, let's start with William Coors, member of the Coors family. Ah. Um, Paul Allen. This was a big one around here. Paul yeah. Allen, Microsoft founder Microsoft. and Seahawks owner. Yep, yep, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, we're up here in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. So of course. Um you know, I don't know much about his kind of philanthropist, of, right, and that kind of thing. I guess that's what people so are telling me. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's crazy. Uh, yeah, to be so unaware, and then everyone, like everyone around, is is clearly affected. Well, it's like you know, it's like any of those companies. It's like you know, uh, you know, uh, Bill Gates, mm-hmm. um, Steve Jobs, Jobs are the small faces, but then there's. All these these other people yeah. that were like well, every time you have a Steve Jobs, you also have a Wozniak, right? Right, exactly. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Albie Herbert, guitarist for the band All That Remains, they're a metal band. Mm. Dennis Hoff, Bunny Ranch owner, he was also called the Trump of Pahrump. Yeah, notorious piece of shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, he died ap- at a rock party for Ron Jeremy. And I can't imagine Can how I that goes. Can I read that Ron Jeremy is the one who he found, found him? him? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Weird. Yeah. Um, Ray Montague, um, she was one of the hidden figures women. She was, I think oh, she was the last of them. Yeah. Wow. Like she was in her 90s. Wow. Um, our weekly wrestler, Dirty Dick Slater. Jeez. <laughs> What the hell? <laughs> Wrestled for WWE and WCW. Um, Kids, don't wrestle. Don't don't be don't become a professional wrestler. <laughs> uh, Nicholas Corda, sound editor on uh, ET, Basic Instinct, yeah. Fatal Attraction. Yeah, big one. Um, Kate Lansbury, she was an actress. She was in Ever After and A Fish Called Wanda. Oh wow! Yeah, small part. Nothing major. She was just one of sure. the, the people. And um, finally, director Danny Liner, who did Harold, the first Harold and Kumar movies. Oh, wow. Young guy. He was in his 40s. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Moving on to news. Um, this is exciting. The folks who did Sherlock are doing a Dracula series. Yeah. Um, it could be really cool. Could be. Could be. They were mentioning um, Coppola's thing. That, like it's going to be that kind of a thing, moody okay. and hammery, and I hope uh, I hope they don't try to contemporize it. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we're going to get to some something that would that, that would suck like me. that. Yeah, in a minute. Um, <coughs> for some reason, the creators of Wrong Turn, the movie Wrong Turn about the right. hillbillies, um, they're rebooting it. 
after like three or four sequels about oh my God, what was it Split Toe there's or several uh, yeah um, the only one I ever paid attention to was Wrong Turn 2 yeah because of Henry Rollins Henry Rollins right right yeah I spent uh, a long time on that movie yeah um, yeah I okay I guess sure you know I mean my question is like every every writer every creator has his little bag of tricks sure. and it's like if if we're back to that if we're like that that's your bag that's the only thing in your bag left in your bag of tricks yeah something Evil Dead 2 coming to 4K Blu-ray oh cool and I wonder if Heather Buckley is involved possibly um, Epics is, and Warner Brothers are doing a series called Pennyworth. Um, it's a ten-episode series. They're casting now. It's about the before life of Alfred Pennyworth. Right. We've talked about this before, where where um, Alfred, you know, prior to working for Bruce Wayne, um, was a badass. And, and well, there's stories there. It's a funny thing about that because. Early on, Alfred was just a dude that kept the Wayne's house, and right. then more and more he got involved, and then suddenly someone noticed, so like, he's a field surgeon, right? Because he's, re- right, he's right, stitching right. this guy together. Yeah. And now we arrive at a place where he may be an old man, but he's still a badass. Right, right, right. Played in Gotham by the dude from Dog Soldiers. Right. Um, who is a badass. Uh, Avengers 4 wrapped. I guess. Okay. And there's already a trailer, supposedly, that someone saw someone somewhere and they're in. talking about it. Okay. And the big reveal that they're talking to now is that there's a villain bigger than Thanos. Uh-huh. Um, and in my opinion, it can only be two peop- one of two people, Galactus or the head of the Skrull. Because the Skrull ha- have a big part in this new Captain this Marvel new, thing. Yeah can't tell a fucking player without a scorecard. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> but I have to keep track of this. Um, new video online of Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters playing. Yeah. And they know, drag some ten-year-old kid up you there. you know what's cool is like, um, you know, when they did the thing with Kiss Guy. Kiss Guy. Um, you know, uh, not a plant, but here's a guy that's like definitely... Somebody cleared that guy. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. I that I I got to think, I got to think. This ten-year-old yeah. kid, you, you know, he's still figuring it out. He he wasn't able to play a whole. That song. was that was a kid that he bar- they barely made it through the metallic thing. Yeah. There's also a video I I didn't know enough anything about, but um, some some kid wants to drum with them. Oh, and really? they put him on the drummer, and the kid. Won't stop drumming. <laughs> he, he keeps drumming, and, and, and Dave Grohl's like, "All right, thanks a lot." I forget the name. Thanks a lot. And the kid's like, "Uh huh." It's funny out there on YouTube. Uh, can, by the way, can Dave Grohl like stop being so awesome? Yeah, no. please. Like, well, <laughs> I know shit like that. If it happens once or twice in a tour or something, yeah. maybe. But when you know, the problem is, is that people start showing up hoping. That well, that, yeah. Fuck yeah, you. Know, it's all thing. about it's it's show business. Get yeah. used to crushed expectations. That's right. Um, there's a new channel coming. I don't know for how long it's going to be here, but it's coming. That's going to be 24/7 Christmas movies. Uh. I want to know. Uh, I want to know if they track what people are watching when they commit suicide, <laughs> and whether it goes up or it like shifts to this. Uh, this sounds like a horrible idea. 
if it, oh, if it oh, lasts, the Christmas well, thing? Yeah. Uh, yeah. If it, if it lasts, <laughs> killing yourself is it the thing? Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, just based on, like, the complaints of people going into, like, stores... Well, there, and, and channel, you know, radio channels will do that in your area. One sure. will go. We're um, going all. I think Hallmark does like a, a yeah. like the month of December. It's just like all yeah. Christmas all the time. But if it's like August and you're tuning oh, into that would yes Virginia, there's a like Santa Claus. That would be horrible. A great movie, by the way, with Charles. That's Bronson. a great movie, but just like <laughs> Charles Bronson in that movie. Anyway. They released a picture of the Broadway production of Beetlejuice. They unveiled Beetlejuice, and he looks like the Ancient Aliens guy. He's got this he weird hair, <laughs> <laughs> and he's in this like Robin <laughs> Thicke suit. Yeah, 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 yeah. It looks, it looks horrific. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I thought it was a dumb idea to begin with. Like, yeah, you know, I don't know. Uh, there's a female-led Grimm spinoff coming. Okay. People like I know John Edwards is a big Grimm fan, um, friend of the show. John, I've Edwards. had several friends work on the show. Have you? Shooting down in Portland. Yeah, yeah, is, yeah. Is where it was shooting. This is some kind of spinoff. I don't watch the show, so I don't, I don't know. But I mean, a lot of people liked it. So yeah. Uh, Jason Bloom of Bloomhouse says that he wants to make films with female directors, but quote, there aren't that many because he's a moron. Right. There's there's so many female films. I mean, look there at are. Jen Wexler who did The Ranger, yeah. Izzy Lee is out there. There's so many out there. The Soskas. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. You're you're just not trying very hard. Yeah. 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 Anyway, not only do you make shitty movies, but now you're not even anyway being you're, inclusive. You're saying dumb shit. Too. I know, right? Yeah. Um, I guess there goes our uh, <laughs> Jason Bloom <laughs> episode. <laughs> Carol Spinney, who was the original Big Bird, yeah. retired. Yeah. That was a big deal. 50 years in that Man. Scene. Can you imagine? I like. I can't imagine the guy not having, like, walking around with his arm up above his head. <laughs> you know? That's a long time. Yeah, he yeah. was also... I'm sure wow. he's going to come up. Spoiler, it, it's planned right now that Martin Robinson, who is the voice of... who, who does telly and Snuffleupagus, yeah. is going to be on in December. I'm hoping... On our show in December. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure he has plenty of Carol Spinney stories. Oh, sure. But, yeah, and yeah. just being on... Working in that world has got to be wild, it's right? It's got to be crazy. Yeah. Um, I, I just saw Carol Spinney uh, because I'm, I'm working on all this art for, for this thing I've got coming up. And uh, I always put on documentaries about artists uh-huh. and uh, the Drew Struzan thing. And, and Carol Spinney's in there talking about. Drew and oh, wow. talking about Jim Henson and oh, that's yeah, very it's cool. very cool. It's a weird world. I, I I had interviewed Martin before and he was married on the steps of one two three Sesame Street. Wow. And it's just like, oh my God. Um I saw the the El, there was an Elmo documentary and they they talk a little bit about how he meet when he meets people and as soon as he br- they bring Elmo out grown-ups become, like, just children. Right, right, right. And it's so weird. And they show some of it in the documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, ABC is planning... Get This is bizarre. So they're planning a sequel to NYPD Blue, which is going to focus on Andy Sipowitz's son. How lazy is that? (laughs) That's like the laziest screenwriting (laughs) ever. (laughs) Um, His son? (laughs) And it's going to be just another cop show. Yeah. 
Uh, Idris Elba was cast in Cats along with Ian McKellen, Jennifer Hudson, Taylor Swift, and everybody else in Hollywood. Man, they're 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 swinging for the fences. They're doubling down on this thing. The I think I said it on the last time this came up is the the one good thing about a Cats movie is that when you go see it, you can enjoy the music and not have those actors in the crowd like fucking with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see, Movie Pass Films. I thought Movie Pass was dead. I thought it was too. Anyway, Movie Pass Films is doing Neil Marshall's next film after Hellboy, and it's called The Reckoning. Okay. Sure, okay. I'm in. I, I love Neil Marshall. Uh, I put up on my Facebook page. Um, I think it's it a bootleg. Be, I think it should be spelled W R E C K. They uh, there was a bootleg of a Hellboy trailer. Oh wow! Talking about that? No. Did you see that? No. Oh yeah, there was a boot. There's a bootleg out there. It's probably gone now, but I'm sure. of the Hellboy trailer, and it it looked it like looked like it looked like a cover song. I mean, they were hitting everything that you uh, were supposed to do. Ian McKellen is in the place of of Ian, um, or uh, what's his name? Hurt John Hurt. Yeah, John Hurt. Uh, uh, but it every shot of Hellboy looks horrific, just weird and rubbery and like. Mm. Yeah, I'm a little afraid. Hmm. On the other hand, though, some reviews have come back of people who have seen footage, and they say it looks great. So, huh? Orange, Orange is the New Black will end after season seven. That's a big deal in somebody's world. Well, yeah, and I'm surprised that it, I mean, wasn't it based on a book? And like, I have like, no. Idea. It is so off my radar. Uh, I think she. I think that in real life, the lady spent one year. In oh wow! Jail, mm. you know, yeah. and uh, or or at least or or maybe that was the premise. She was supposed to spend a year. I, I can't remember. I yeah, the 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 show is loved by the people that watch oh, it. Yeah. I'm just not one Definitely. of them. Definitely. They wrapped filming on the Men in Black reboot, but they tweeted some picture of them. We, so good for them. I, I'm sure we've talked about that before. Where that this is one of the. It's a dumb idea. It's a dumb idea. In a long Stop rebooting new shit. I know. So Stallone is doing a film after Rambo, this new Rambo thing he's Uh doing, where he takes on the drug cartels of Mexico, called Hunter, in which he plays a hunter searching for a genetically engineered monster, right? Kind of cool. Yeah. One of the things I read was that it was the one of the ideas pitched as a Rambo film. So instead of it, uh-huh. yeah. So it'd almost be like kind of like Rambo does Predator, right? In a weird way. Yeah, 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 and yeah, instead, yeah. someone says that's a dumb idea, and it doesn't Hunter. doesn't stick with canon. So we'll just make you another you know, Hunter badass. Every year, I keep holding out hope for the Rocky versus Rambo movie. <laughs> I'm, I'm really, I'm really pulling for that. But at this point, you know, Stallone's in his seventies. I know. Yeah, it's insane. Hand hand. Any machine gun to a seventy-year-old and tell him to shoot it, and that guy's in traction for right. a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, there he is on the on fucking Instagram doing weighted pull-ups and. Yep. There's your genetically engineered <laughs> monster. Uh, David Gordon Green, who did Halloween, said in an interview that he wants to reboot Critters and or Ghoulies. So he wants to do a rubber monster movie, I okay, guess. Okay, well, rubber monster cool. Movie. Of the two, um, 
you know, Critters is the is the better yeah. of, the, of the two. So maybe you do Ghoulies. Yeah, maybe you, you know? do say make it good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like yeah, the way yeah. I like that thinking. Yeah. Um, in interviews, John Carpenter has been dropping hints about They Live Too. Well, no, I mean, I know. <laughs> Are we doing that now? Politically, the time is right. I yeah, guess. I guess. I guess. I don't, you know, he's been talking about directing again, and and uh, I don't know, man. The Ward was the Ward just was horrible, yeah. and whatever I forget what he did before that, but that wasn't no great. Ghost of Mars, or is that that? No, no. Don't even get me started on Ghost of Mars. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Uh, let's see. Um, Netflix canceled Luke Cage and Iron Fist. Yeah. Internet theory is that they're just going to reboot him on the Disney streaming app. Possibly. Well, I I know it, it was not a surprise that Iron, Iron Fist, Fist got yeah. canceled. Luke Cage was popular. Yeah. I think if they're smart, if I was in, in the King of the Forest, as they used to say, yeah. on the, I open a new show on the Disney app called... Not the Defenders. The, uh, the, the Heroes for Hire. Team, yeah. Heroes for Hire. It's Luke Cage and Iron Fist. And yeah. they set off in their own little adventures and, and everything's back to normal. Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, um, Halloween. Speaking of Halloween, preview night seven point seven million. Not bad. All right. Not bad. Yeah. Got a release. And then I talked to I I, I talked to um, a friend of the show, Lorelai Shannon, who went and saw it just literally the other night. Uh huh. Um, said it was fun. Yeah. You know, it, was, it had some problems, but you know, it was a, a Halloween movie, and. Uh, uh, I think clearly establishes that Michael Myers is not human. Oh, okay. Well, good. Now that like a Jason. <laughs> thank Borges. God that's that's. <laughs> <horrible. laughs> well, I hear it's all about female empowerment. And right. You know, she's. I like that. I like that. That it ignores all the other movies. Yeah. It's like yeah. basically you go from Halloween one to this new movie. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll see it probably when it comes on mm-hmm. Shutter or something. Sure. Yeah. Shudder. Can we talk about that for just a half a second? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, remember, I've become a member of Shudder, and I'm, and I'm supporting it. It's four ninety nine a month. I'm supporting it because I think that kind of thing needs to be supported. Right. Um, and the more people who do, the, the more money the, they the have. The better they can do yeah. their job. And I'm hoping. Yeah. And they're already doing that in that they've just acquired Mandy and the Ranger. Um, exclusively nice. before it goes to regular streaming. So it's good there. There's some good stuff. There's some really odd prints. Um, the print I watched last night of Return of the Blind Dead was uh, the, the title on it was Return of the Evil Dead, which is just one huh. of the various prints of it. Um, they've got a good catalog, you know. Mm-hmm. If one could, if one were um, of that mind, sign on, pillage their library for a month or two. You know, but it's right, only right, five right. bucks. Right. You know. So anyway. Yeah. And then finally, they, I got a date on that show, The Degenerates, on Netflix, ten thirty. So October thirtieth. The rundown is Joey Diaz, Christina P, Brad Williams, um, Brad Williams, I think that's his name, uh, Big J Okerson, Lisa Traeger, and Yamanika Sanders. Some of the funniest and foulest comedians out there. Gotcha. And I think it's it's going to be great. Uh, moving on to trailers, a mixed bag. Yeah. Some good stuff, some maybe not so good. I tried I started at thirty eight and mm. there was one shitty horror film after another one 
and and films that were just like just you know I had to edge them out. Right. So we're down to a, a quick if we point. were back in the. Uh, uh, Star system of Netflix, a bunch of one star. Yeah, just things that you just look at and you go, oh yeah, okay. They're yeah. All, and they all hitch upon, you know. There's escape. There's a new escape room trailer. Uh-huh. There's a there's an Aladdin trailer that doesn't show anything except for a lots of CG stuff. There's a Lion King trailer that was didn't really reveal anything. Right. The most you saw was a CG paw hitting the ground. So there's a live action. There's a live. Oh yeah, um, yeah. John Favreau is doing the uh, Lion King, uh, and it looks straight up like a live rendition of of the movie. Right. Anyway, first trailer: the aftermath. Kira Knightley and one of the Scars Guards takes place in World War Two, where a British man and woman come and live in Hamburg in a house. Yes. And there's some sparks between what? Uh, husband is off to war. Um, guy who lives at the house. Inevitably, him and the wife get together. Mm-hmm. Uh, looks, um, you know, as a drama, it looks fine. It's it very pearl clutchy, very romance novel y, yes, very yeah, uh, forbidden lovers across the sea of. Blah, 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 right, blah. right. And now you have to deal with. The yeah. aftermath of our affair, mm-hmm. yeah. and it's very much in line with like when I said Kira Knightley is in it, no one batted an eye. Right. Of course, she was in it yeah. because this is what Kira, these are the kind of films yeah, Kira yeah, yeah. Knightley does. Yeah. Moving on, this one really surprised me. Sam Rockwell, Taraji P Henson, called the best of enemies about civil rights leader uh, Anne Atwater and the head of the Klan being put on a segregation of schools. Committee. Yeah, this was like in 1971 in Durham, North Carolina. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, looks great. Looks like someone wants an Oscar. Yep, exactly. <laughs> looks like yeah. someone might win one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she looks powerful. She looks badass, man. Fucking She powerful. turns that dude around, you will listen to Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there's this simple line where he goes, you know, this will all be really quick as long as you get don't get in my way. And she's like, I mean to get in your way. And it's just like, oh, God damn, we yeah. need more of that. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, it's cool because... It would be real easy to just make him the villain. Mm-hmm. But we're getting glimpses of him at home. Yeah. And he is. He is the villain. I mean, he's the head of the clan. There's no denying that. There's but no there's also a, a conscience there. Yeah. Like he says to that one guy, like, you went too far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and I don't know the history enough to know mm-hmm. what, yeah. like, what this means, but at one point he's up and he's making a speech or something. He's like, I'm the head of the clan. Yeah. And he's like, and if I can't believe in something... Right. I've got a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So and maybe he gets turned around. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I don't maybe, know. May, maybe I don't know that there needs to be a kumbaya moment at the end of something like this. Right. But I think that maybe just an understanding, like we think, see things differently, right, but right, I right. still respect your right to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, hopefully. Next up, Blood, Sweat, and Terror. Nine blood-soaked, ass-kicking tales. This is like a martial arts and a horror this movie. This is so weird. It is so it weird. It is so weird. But... I found myself going. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I. It's a Canadian film. I it's guess. <laughs> like it's literally like we the, uh, people are fighting. That like some argument breaks out and it turns into a martial arts thing, and then yeah. there's monsters and. Uh, 
I don't know. I'm in. I'm in too. <laughs> <laughs> this, this comes on Netflix. The oh, the fight stuff was cool. Yeah, yeah. Add this to my list. Yeah. By the way, um, the name come. There's a movie now on Netflix now with Iko Awai from The Raid. Right. Um, shit. The title is slipping is my mind. Is it one of the trailers that we have? Is it? It might be. It is. It is. It'll Never mind. Okay. We're going to get to yeah, that yeah. in a second. Uh, next up, Dylan McDermott, a uh, movie called The Glove Hitch Killer. It's a kid, teenage kid coming to realize that his dad is a serial killer. Serial killer. killer. Yeah. This looks a little lifetimey, like Lifetime Network. Maybe. maybe. I. It, there was... There was more humor in the trailer mm. than I would have expected. Yeah, throw in the bag with things like the stepfather and yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It looks well acted, and Dylan McDermott looks great. Yeah. Like he looks like he's really like and out of his freaking mind. Yeah, out of yeah. his freaking mind. <laughs> Next up, uh, director Karen Kusama, um, her film Destroyer, uh, with Nicole Kidman as a police detective reconnects. With people after, from an undercover assignment in her distant past. Uh, again, looks like somebody's going after an Oscar. Yeah, acting um, her ass off. But there she is. Like there's a moment in the trailer where you see her with a with an M sixteen and she's running through a room and she yeah. knows clearly someone took a class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> so this and, looks and not and not afraid to look like shit. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. This she is definitely awful. her monster yeah, moment. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm kind of in. I don't know that it's going to be a movie where I'm going to feel real good after mm -hmm. it all is over. Yeah. In the Serpico kind of is she, is gritty she, cop way. In the trailer, is she talking to her son? I think. Like, it seems like... Or, Basically, it sounds like somebody is, is having a hard time dealing with the past, and she wants to do something good. Yeah. That she says that in the trailer. Mm -hmm. I want to do, just once in my life, I want to do something good. Yeah, I've lived a shitty life. I don't know what life. that means, right. but... Agreed. But it's her, just, again, you got to love it. She's swinging for the fences. Yeah. Uh, next up, director Claire Denis, um, High Life, a father and... Uh, his daughter struggle to survive in deep space where they live in isolation. Yeah, this looks really weird. Heavy. Heavy yeah. in a 2001 kind of a way. Mm -hmm. And, um... Because, like, there, there's, like, this whole... Like, I didn't even know for a little bit that it was science fiction at all. Yeah. And there's they're, 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 they're arguing about, like, s some baby mission? or I don't know, like... Yeah, they're what they it sounds like they're trying... The, one of their missions is to get pregnant on this deep space thing. And they're, they're trying to harness, like, the, the spiraling energy of a black hole. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's super... But within it, it's all the people... I mean, it's Romarian again, right? right? Locked in a room, yeah. bouncing off of each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it looks great. And it's the... What's his name? Um, Rob Pattinson from Twilight. Right, right, right. Who seems to have made the decision, much like Daniel Radcliffe, to so go, I'm going to do I'm all these little distance myself and do little underground little. films yeah. that are are whatever. Next step, um, a movie called Jin, seventeen year old black girl whose world is turned upside down when her mother um, becomes uh, converts to Islam. Right, and it becomes a thing where it's like, Mom, you you may come to this place that not me, and you can't make me right. And and about having trying to. 
maintain our relationship as mother-daughter right. despite your newfound... Right. And the mother is saying, in, in essence, look, you know, this. I found peace of mind here. You might, too. Right. And check it out. Right, and it right, sounds right. like she meets a boy or something. Or yeah. Well, and her daughter is, is into dancing and yeah, stuff. Yeah, she's got her own yeah, life that does not thing. coincide right. with what's happening. Yeah. Heavy drama. Yeah, heavy drama. Timely. Well, acted. well acted. Yeah. Yep. Speaking of that, uh, next up, um, Jonathan. This is this is I put on because the concept was so weird and so strong. The guy w- from Baby Driver... He's right. got a mental condition where he's essentially awake most of the day, but he has two people living inside of him. Not right. It 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 reminded me of Fight Club. Yeah. Without the fighting. Yeah. And and there's like a changeover. Yeah. And, and they leave video messages for one each other. Exactly. And, and then. Wh- one of one breaks the rule yes and gets a girlfriend yes and then that sets the other one off into this weird jealousy spiral right um, this looks like that it reminded me a lot of that Topher Grace movie that we saw the the, the trailer for about him being locked in his house oh uh, yeah, yeah 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 this reminded me of that too where it's like he's trying to deal on a regular basis but things are slowly slipping out of yeah. the, out of his grasp yeah. again more more of this of someone just acting their ass off, yeah, because um, that's hard. That's two separate oh, characters. Yeah. Next up, um, kids' film, which is kind of weird for us, but uh, the kid who would be king, directed by Joe Cornish, who did Attack the Block. Yes. And this looks straight up like a kid flick. Uh, it totally a is a cool kid flick. Yeah. Twelve-year-old um, finds Excalibur mm-hmm. and pulls it out of the stone. And, uh, you know, and the kids are, are, are completely cognizant of the story. They yeah. know the story. It's yeah, like yeah, yeah. They're, they're joking about it. And then, sure enough, Merlin shows up. And then there's, there's this whole medieval menace that's happening. That's coming, and, and he's... In, yeah, and, and it looks like, you know, feel felt like things like Goonies and like, yeah. you know, let's have an adventure kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then when I saw... At first I was like, man, okay. And then with... But with Joe Cornish involved, I mean, essentially, that's what Attack the Block was. Right. Yeah, like a kid's That's film. true, yeah. So, yeah. Here's that movie. I call uh, The movie is called The Night Comes for Us. Um, a gangland enforcer caught amidst a treacherous and violent insurrection with his, his triad family um, uh, ends up happening where he's got someone that he, they tell him to he's, kill. He's and he trying to kill. redeem himself. Kind of like the killer. Kind of like the Very killer. Very much like it. Yeah. I haven't seen it yet. Except I the high action on my list. looks yeah. badass. They're saying if there's not a Raid 3, this is the Raid 3. This is the Raid 3, yeah. Um, crazy action. Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch that this week, and I'll report back cool. next week. Um, up next, The Possession of Hannah Grace. Um, a cop... When a cop who's just out of rehab takes a graveyard shift in a city hospital morgue, she faces a series of bizarre violent events. Talk about an evil entity. So she she's she's left with this corpse mm-hmm. that was somebody who was um, uh, possessed in, in, in an exorcism yeah. and died. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of creepy, lots mm-hmm. of creepy going on. You know, yeah. like the corpse is laying there and its eye opens and 
weird. I'm sure there's like a lot that. of like there's a perfectly logical explanation for all of this. It kind of reminded me in a weird way, and it may be in a not so weird way, the autopsy of Jane Doe. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But this had a, had a supernatural element to it. To it. Yeah, Look yeah, good. Yeah. I thought as a horror film of the horror films I saw, the multitude of trailers I saw, yeah. this was easily one of the best. Cool. I mean, it, it, the 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 chick, the possessed girl, mm-hmm. looks amazing. It looks amazing. Yeah. The makeup on it is yeah, great. Yeah. Uh, and in that same sort of vein, a film called The Sicilian Ghost Story, um, about a 12-year-old smitten with her handsome classmate, and they venture into the forest, and this forest... Uh, I, I, I think she's in love with a ghost. Yeah, it sounds like it. And um, uh, on the list mostly because here, here is another one of those stories, a ghost story yes. told through an eye. It's straight up Italian. Yes. So it's very, it's told through their sensibility. Beautiful. And it looks beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, the cinematography looks fantastic. Um, comparisons I saw in, in the. Um, and the blurbs for it were being made to uh, Del Toro, mm-hmm. um, that type of yeah, thing. Yeah, I got the orphanage out yeah, of it. Yeah. Yeah, and um, Pan's Labyrinth mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah looks good. I'm in. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you watched? Um, I've not had much time. But, <laughs> um, I, I'm in the middle of a weird work rotation where we are working mm-hmm. a different shift each week, and I'm in preparation for Bleeding Ham. Um, but I did manage to see. Um, I'm going to try to get this right. Uh, Eramentari. The the, the Del Iglesia thing. The, yeah, the blacksmith and the devil. Yeah, he's it's produced by Alex Del Iglesia. Uh, I just added it. It's on Netflix. It's it's very cool. Mm-hmm. It's very cool. The version on Netflix, um, and maybe. Maybe if I had watched it on my big computer, I would have had an option to to use the original language. Um, The English dubbing makes it seem like the acting is really hokey. Okay. It's not. It's not. It's just that it's just the dubbing is bad. Um, It is so fucking cool. It is so. I'm excited. There is there's a scene where. The, the souls of the dam are being shepherded shepherded into hell, mm-hmm. and it's right out of Gustav Dory. Very cool. Drawing. It, it's it's it, the demons are fucking cool, man. They're badass. Um, it's a Basque uh, folklore story. Huh. It's very odd. Um, the blacksmith is awesome. Like you know, they they go to Gideon one day, and he's he's fashioned all this armor so that like you know they when they shoot him. They, Ineffectual. It, it's very cool. Right on. Yeah, check it right out. Right on. Let's see. Um, it's Halloween, so I'm doing that. I'm trying right. to do that. So here's some stuff. My wife and I watched Severance on Shutter. Yeah, the, the British film yeah. doesn't age well. Doesn't no. age well. She kept going it's like a very. It's a very '90s kind of movie. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah we it it landed pretty dead mm-hmm. when, uh, with us watching it. Uh, I sat up here the other night and watched Do- Dr. Butcher, M.D. <laughs> uh, I watched it it's on Shudder. It's something called Jungle Holocaust. And, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Those things have their charm. Also watched Night of the Devils, which was a silly uh, Italian thing. <laughs> um, also watched, again, Return of the Blind Dead. Return of the Evil Dead, which is right. Insane. I watched Hell of the Living Dead, the Vincent Dawn um, SWAT guys on a 
Jamaican islands with zombies. It's it's one of the best worst films ever. <laughs> Literally, there are moments where this is a real line. At one point, the, uh, the cop says, or uh, the soldier says to his another another soldier, "Go check out the basement." And the guy says, without a hint of irony, "Okay." hold my here, hold my gun. <laughs> and he heads off to the basement. It's terrible. But, um, fun. Uh, on YouTube, I found a copy of America. It was called Return of the Living Dead. It's The original title was called Zedder. Um, it, it was okay. And uh, did, did I talk about the curious creations of Christine McConnell? We talked about the trailer. But did I talk mm. about watching the show? Oh yeah, you it's did. That you did. You did. Brian Henson the, thing, uh, the hot topic, awful uh, cooking Halloween show. Yeah. Cooking show. That uh, a lot of people are loving this thing, but I hated every frame. Mm-hmm. Every frame. It just seemed really, really contrived. And and this supposition where like she, the the first episode she makes uh, bones. They're they're essentially pretzels with fondant wrapped around. Sure, them. sure. And uh, she decorated them to the point where it takes her like. Tw- 10, 15, 20 minutes to do each one. It's uh-huh. like, like, no one's doing that shit. Right. Anyway. And then finally, I want to talk a little bit about The Haunting the Hill House. Um, we are two episodes from the ending, uh-huh. um, which uh, I, I I have my reservations already. Uh, it's very interesting. I wish it was called something else. Uh-huh. Because it's not... It's only vaguely... It ricochets off the original story. Right. It's still compelling, and there's some great ghost moments, and there's some great makeup moments. Um, I love the idea that I've been told and read. I've read these articles that are saying that from from jump in scenes anywhere in the house, there are people littered throughout that are just standing there in the scene, and you don't even notice them. Uh-huh. And it's become this real kind of game about Where's spot Waldo? the ghost. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, so I recommend it, but man, don't don't go in there thinking you're gonna get it's not it's not the, the uh, book or the Shirley the, Jackson yeah or the Robert yeah. Wise film or even the Jan de Bond film yeah um, they do these weird little nods like Eleanor Crane gets married and her new name is Eleanor Vance which is the name of right, the character right, right. so that kind of s- little naughty stuff sure. but, um, yeah it's kind of cool are you reading anything? Uh, no, again, I've had no time. I've, I've been reading out loud to, uh, to Jennifer. Mm. Um, I've been reading, um, she had not experienced the Dunwich Horror. Oh, good. That's fun. So we're doing that right That's now. super fun. Yeah. I'm still reading Catherine Dunn's Geek Love, but I, don't ask me why. <laughs> <laughs> but I picked up, I, I had a copy of Von Clausewitz's book on war. Right. He was a Napoleonic general and it's his several thousand page treatise on on war uh-huh. and and why we war and how we war and how to be successful and blah 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 blah. Right. I have no idea why I picked it up and started reading it. <laughs> but now I've got this brick that I'm carrying around. Uh are you listening to anything? And we'll get out of here. No. That it's what, my busy. life my life is like on hold until <laughs> November. Yeah. We'll get to that. Lot, lot of stuff, so I'll go through them pretty quickly. Blanketly, I've mentioned it before, Gikugaku Moyo. They're a Japanese, a modern-day Japanese psychedelic band, 
and I've now gone through their entire catalog and I just saw a performance at KEXP in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Fucking amazing. Really good. It's droney and it's super psychedelic. Sure. But it's good. Uh, did a couple Prince records. Symbol in Chaos and Disorder. A genius. Soundtrack to I Think We're Alone Now. Solid. Um, soundtrack to The Escape. Soundtrack to King of Thieves. A Simple Favor. The Uninvited, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, The Hate You Give, Haunting of Hill House, White Boy Rick, Comrade Detective, all really good. Okay. Um, it's some of it, I mean, go to my Facebook page, I, I put more in-depth things and I'll try to, do. I don't want to bore anyone here with a lot of this stuff, but um, if I'm mentioning it, it's probably worth at least checking out. Um and then there's a new greatest hits Southern culture on the skids called Bootlegger's Choice. Nice. And that's very fun. Loser this week was Elvis Costello and the Imposters. They released a record called Look Now. Mm-hmm. And it it just doesn't land. It, it feels like someone trying to recapture something that they did a long, long time uh-huh. ago with, like, the attractions. Sure. Comedy. There's a new Greg Proops record out. And that was really good. If you're a fan of his podcast, this is more of the same. So, you know, don't expect... You know, it's more more constructed, but it's definitely... He's ranting about Orange 45, and he's angry about what's going on politically. And right, right. But it's solid stuff. Uh, we're good. Next week, we're doing this live at Bleeding Ham thing. That's, that's right. And we've got... We're trying to orchestrate a variety of guests of people who will be appearing there. Right. And we're also trying to orchestrate a live music performance, which is going to be be badass. Yeah. Um, All sorts of stuff. So uh, next um, next week's show is going to be real a real interesting experiment. It's going to be an experiment, and and yeah, you know, I think it's going to be great. I do too. I I I think it's going to be chaotic, like trying to like organize it and get it all pulled together but I think it'll be fun but it, it, it'll be cool and we'll have that up um, for just before Halloween right and that's exactly. awesome exactly thanks again to John Scalari he rocks um, I think we're good go to our Facebook page and please please interact with us because right now we're working in a kind of a vacuum and it just helps us to know that we're not shouting into like this empty room that someone's <laughs> out there um, we would really appreciate it for the Bonus Material Podcast, I'm Tom Carnell. And I'm Langley West. Stay scared.